Um, it's a joy to be here with you uh, tonight in finally, and I thank you for your warm welcome. Uh, the passage we're considering tonight is found in Galatians 4, Galatians 4 and verses 12 through to 20. Um, I trust and I hope you've been enjoying your study in Galatians. Um, really the book of Galatians um, very much deals with the gospel and um, is concerned with the very heart of the gospel. And at this point in the book, um, Paul has he's dealt with salvation um, and that it is through Christ um, alone and that is through faith alone. And there needs to be this um, a- a- abandonment uh, of pride and a self-renouncing embrace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he's looked at the, the liberty which is found in our union to Christ. And he's also uh, dealt with the fact that the Christian's boast is to be found in the cross and in the cross alone. And we come here tonight to a section where Paul is he's not primarily coming as a theologian um, with, with, his, with his great mind and uh, with this intricate doctrine, but he's coming to them in this section and it's, it's a very much an emotional section of the book. And he's appealing to these Galatians from the very depth of his heart and you get that as, as we read the passage you'll see that that, that that comes out and you can just imagine that as these churches in Galatia um, were, reading, were reading this uh, letter of Paul's that when they came to this section in chapter 4 that maybe some of the, the words were a little blurry or um, smudged and maybe the paper was a little deformed because so great was the burden Paul felt as he wrote this that he was weeping as he wrote it with his very hands and we see the, the direct context um, I, I didn't check with Paul but I think the speaker last week you didn't deal with this passage did you? It, yeah that's right um, someone, someone cancelled Johnny Allen had got COVID or something yeah um, but we see in the direct context in verses 8 to 11 um, that Paul is making this, this appeal, this earnest appeal for them not to turn back um, or to turn from the, the, the all sufficiency of Christ uh, he says, don't be content with these, in verse 9, these beggarly elements, these shadows. Um, but, but see the, the liberty that is found in Christ. And, and he's coming really, uh, in verse 11, he's still not sure. He's, he says, I'm afraid for you. And he's a little doubtful still that, that as he's come as a theologian and with formability of mind, um, that he's persuaded them. And he comes to them now, as a brother, verse 12, he comes to them as a pastor and he even comes in verse 90 we see as a mother. And he appeals to them on, the, on the account of the relationship that they once had. And we'll read the passage, Galatians 4 uh, and verses 12. Brethren, I urge you, become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. 
You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise nor reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. I have, the, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labour in birth again, until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now, and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Now I want to look at this passage in three rough sections. Um, I say rough because... Uh, it's kind of hard to break up this passage uh, and tidily, um, but my plan is to look at verse 12, Paul's appeal proper, and then from the end of verse 12, verse 12b to 15, um, the grounds for his appeal or the premise, if you want to pee, for his appeal, and then finally from 16 to 20, um, his uh, purpose for his appeal. So verse 12, his, uh, the appeal proper. He says, Brethren, I urge you, I long for you, I, I, I um, beg of you, become like me, for I became like you. Now literally this translates, uh, become as I, for I as you. And it's sort of bipartite, there's two aspects to it. He first says, become as I. Now Paul is saying here, um, I used to be zealous with regards to the law, a zealous lawkeeper, um, and and he thought that his own imagined goodness and that his own selected obedience would be meritorious, would be um, advantageous um, in the sight of God, that he could justify himself before God. And yet we see that that Paul came to see the true demands of the law. Um, it's sort of seen in Romans 7, isn't it? That he realised that, that, that the law is, um, demands a, a perpetual and ongoing keeping, not just in deed, but in heart. And, and he realised that all his zealous law keeping, that he thought was perfecting and justifying himself, he realised is worthless. Um, you know, you see it in, in Philippians 3, don't you? Um, verse 7, he says, But what things were gained to me, that, that was being a Hebrew, that was circumcision, that was the, the, his works that he did to justify himself. He says in the end of verse um, 7 there, I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The surpassing worth of known Christ. So what Paul is saying is he's saying, become like me and give up these things. See the the futility of trying to earn your own salvation and come again to see the liberty that is afforded to you in Christ. And then he says, become like me, for I became like you. 
And really the, the, the commentary for this, um, this is seen in, in 1 Corinthians 9. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 19. It says, um, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win the Jews. Verse 21, To those who are without the law, as without the law, that I might win those who are without the law. And what Paul is saying, um, he's saying, When I came to you originally, the, the narrative is seen in Acts 13 and 14, he's saying, When I came, I, I, I came as a Gentile with regards to the ceremonial law. He says, I had cast away the legalism of the the scribes and the Pharisees and he was living in a way so that he could establish common ground, so that he could build relationship and so that ultimately he could uh, tell them the gospel. And Paul is saying, he's saying, are you going to set yourselves apart and above from me the apostle by taking a stand on these mosaic observances the very mosaic observances which I abandoned for your sake. And Paul's entreating them. He says, let not that not be the case. And he longs for them to know and, and to continue to know and experience the liberation that he had come to know. The liberty of being in Christ. I think the, the amplified version captures the meaning here. It says, believers, I beg of you, become as I. Free from the bondage of Jewish ritualism and ordinances, for I have become as you are, a Gentile. Um, I think before we move on, there's a lesson here as well. It says in, in, in verse 12 at the beginning again, I beg of you brothers, I urge, I urge you, I... I, I um, I long for you to become like me. And there's an intensity there. There's a longing. Um, If you look at the word, there's a sense of absoluteness. And he's absolutely straining for these Gentiles so that they would be restored. And the point is this. When when we as individuals have come to, to see something that has benefited us and excites us and has fundamentally changed us, What is our response? Can we say with the psalmist, I tell of what God has done for my soul. You know, do we want other people to know about this? As did Paul. Do we desire for them to share in the benefit which we have come into the good of? And Paul here, he's not merely interested in in their doctrinal position. He's interested in them as individuals. And the question is, when last have you, when last have I, with holy exuberance, told others of what Jesus has done for your soul? When have we entreated and longed for with with an absolute intensity to become as, as we are, that is to be in Christ? If there's not some measure of excitement or exuberance, if there's not even a desire within us to express what Christ has done for us, there's good question to ask if we really know these things ourselves. That's his 
uh, appeal proper. And now the, the premise or the anchor for Paul's appeal um, really it's bound up in the fact that, that Paul had told them the truth and it's bound up in how they responded and how they received Paul. And he appeals to them on that ground. Um, we'll try to follow the thought flow here. He says at the end of verse 12, You have not injured me at all, or you have done me no wrong. And I think in the context here, he's referring back to the first time he was with them. He says, You have done me no wrong. Um, the heiress tense would, would point back. It would seem that's the case. You've done me no wrong. You know that because of my physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. And there's been much uh, debate and discussion and conjecture over this verse by what precisely the illness was. Um, this this um, <clears throat> physical infirmity. And it's hard to be dogmatic. In fact, you can't be. We don't really know the exact diagnosis of what Paul had. Um, the three most common suggestions would be that he had contracted malaria... Um, in the lower regions of Pamphylia. Um, it's a more swampy and marshland area and he, and he may be a contracted malaria and as a result was going up to the higher and more breezy area of Galatia, southern Galatia. Um, other people suggest it could have been epilepsy. Um, the words in verse 14, despise or reject, maybe uh, allude to that. Um, and the third, and, and maybe the most common held view, is that he had some ophthalmic disease, um, eye condition, um, and maybe conjunctivitis, people uh, speculate. Uh, we don't know. I'm not here to argue one way or the other. I think, personally, if you were to ask, I think maybe the first malaria. It's interesting, uh, the disease attacks the optic nerve in some cases and can cause problems in sight. Um, but, anyway, it is what it is. Um, there's certain things we do know, though, in this passage. First, we know that God had ordered the circumstances, so in the, in the end, uh, Paul would speak to these people and... Either Paul was detained in Galatia for a while and he hadn't initially planned to stay there long and he was detained by this illness and, and preached the gospel to them or the very trajectory of his trip had um, been changed and um, he, he, he went up to Galatia to spend a time um, there. Um, we also know, we see in verse 14, and my trial which was in the flesh. Um, this illness was a trial to the Galatians. Um, and, and it seems as if something, um, it was something which naturally speaking was quite unsightly and quite unpleasant to look upon. And um, it was the natural reaction would seem that people would separate themselves from Paul. It would seem from the, the verses despise or reject. And it literally means to, to spit on someone. And he's saying, but that wasn't the case with you. Instead, you, you, you welcomed me with open arms. In fact, so warm was your welcome, he writes in verse 14, at the end, you received me as an angel of God, even as an angel of Christ. 
And Paul here is not setting himself up as God or arrogating unto himself the authority of Christ, but he's commenting on on the the heartly wel- welcome he received, the the wholehearted welcome of these Galatian people. <clears throat> in fact, so great was their dedication. It's seen in verse uh, fifteen. For I bear you witness that if possible you'd have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. That may alludes uh, to his disease and nature of it, but I think the point is he was saying so great was your dedication for the furtherance of the gospel that you'd have done anything. You'd have even given up your sight for me. And again there's a challenge there, isn't there? How is our response? What is our response? To someone who who faithfully preaches the word of God. Our response shouldn't be on a superficial level on how they conduct themselves and how they look, their connections, their mannerisms on the platform. The question should be, is he a man of God imbued with a sense of the spirit uh, with a burden to proclaim the truth? Let me try put this together. We see Paul has made an appeal that these people would become like him, that they would abandon these legalistic ways. But the ground of his appeal is upon their initial reception of him. And when Paul had initially come to to Galatia, these Galatians had realized that he was speaking the truth. They had hearkened unto what he was saying. And he was saying, the important verse here is verse 15. He's saying, what then was the blessed, the blessings you enjoy? He was saying it was a blessedness to you. The the word um, has an idea of uh, wellness and joy and a deep understanding of this and blessing. And he's saying... Remember the blessedness, remember the eagerness, the hunger you had for these things. He's saying, you've lost that, what then has happened to that? He's saying, become like me, remember once more the liberty that is afforded to you in Christ. He's saying, God had orchestrated that I came to you in the first time, don't you forget these things. And then we see finally, the purpose of his appeal. And we come into this tremendous wee section from 16 to the end. Um, And it's a a section where we see Paul's unfailing concern for these Galatians. And yet in the face of that, his unfailing desire and affection for their restoration. Now the concern is seen in verse uh, 16. He says, Have I therefore become your enemy? Paul had had become an enemy to these people. And the really concerning bit is the latter half of that verse. He says, because I tell you the truth. Why had Paul become their enemy? Frankly, it was because he had not changed. And Paul continued to preach the same gospel which he had always preached. And these Galatians, they were going in for this new and additional doctrine. A doctrine steeped in deep self-idolatry. But Paul, in the face of their declension, stayed unflinched and unmoved in his uh, take-up of the gospel. And he spoke and continued to speak the truth. And he had become someone, the object of their hate as a result. John Stott writes, The one that they had received as God's angel, 
as God's son, he now regarded as their enemy. Why? Simply because he had been telling them some painful home truths. Painful because it had contradicting, or it was contradicting their newfound desires of heart. I think this is this is illustrated very well in in the Old Testament in Second Chronicles, Second <clears throat> Chronicles eighteen, and um, it's talking about the king Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat was a good king overall. He was a godly king, and um, <clears throat> we see. Uh, although in that he had his weakness we see in verse 1 of 2nd Chronicles 18 um, and by marriage he allied himself with Ahab Ahab was not a good king Ahab was not a godly king and we see that after some years after this marriage that Ahab puts on this uh, splendid feast and calls up um, Jehoshaphat Uh, this is all in verse 2 and he says come up with me to, to Ramoth Gilead um, to fight the Assyrians. Um, now, given his due, Jehoshaphat says in verse 4, Please require for the word of the Lord today. So, um, as a result, Ahab, uh, verse 5, he gathers together these prophets, 400 of them. 400 prophets he knew would precisely say what he wanted to hear. And they come up and these uh, prophetic sycophants um, tell him in the end of verse 5, Go up for God will deliver it into the king's hand. But Jehoshaphat again, he sees through this and he says, Is there not a prophet of the Lord here? Now listen to the response of the king. He said, So as the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me Um, but they get this man up anyway uh, Micaiah and he prophesies uh, ultimately we see in in verse 22 uh, the end of verse 22 is prophecy and the Lord has declared disaster against you there's one man one man out of these 401 men who tells Ahab the truth and what's Ahab's Response. He takes Micaiah, he strikes him, he puts him in prison and ultimately goes up to Ramoth Gilead's. A decision which costs him his life. Now Ahab's response illustrates the folly and the ruin of viewing one as an enemy because they tell you the truth. Because they tell you something you don't want to hear. Something which doesn't conform to your predisposed uh, ideas and decisions. And in reality, Micaiah was Ahab's friend. And if he had heard what Micaiah had to say, it would have ultimately saved his life. For his message, although it was contrary to the multitudes, although it was contrary to what the king wanted to hear... It was the truth. And the point is, let us not be like Ahab. And when God sends Micaiahs into our life, let us not ignore them. And when we come to the word of God, let us not be selective in our take-up of it. 
This is the case for some people, isn't it? They've got certain passages that they very much enjoy. They enjoy debating about them and um, talking about them and discussing them. But there are certain passages or certain concepts within the Word of God that they'll have nothing to do with. Why? Because it doesn't conform to their own construction of Christianity, their own constructed view. And the point is, let this not be the case. The true Christian is the one who knows that God is living. And he knows that when he comes to the Word of God, that it is living and that it will go straight to the very heart of your problem. It doesn't come to you and say how good a life you're living and all this and that. The Word of God is honest. And sometimes when we read it, it's uncomfortable. If we read it honestly, it will challenge us. And it will show us areas in our life where we need to reform. And let us not be like Ahab. Let us not be like these Galatians who make an enemy of the truth. Why? Because it's the truth. And ultimately it's to their detriment. Ahab lost his life. And these Galatians, look in verse 15. What then has happened to the blessing you enjoy? They were miserable. They would lost something of the blessedness of their salvation. And we see in, in uh, chapter 5 verse 4 that ultimately if they continue like this, Paul says, you will become estranged from Christ himself. Let us not be selective in our uptake of the word of God or indifferent to the things of God. Ellie Weasel he was a French writer. He went through the <clears throat> Holocaust. Um, and he wrote copious amounts of literature on um, the people being uh, indifferent to the Holocaust and people forgetting it and not treating it as, as they should, historically speaking. And he wrote, and I think it's an interesting quote, he says, The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. Let us not be indifferent to the word of God. Um, there's, a, there's a challenging passage in, in Luke, uh, Luke 10. It's also in Matthew 11, I believe. Luke 10, verse 15, it says, And you, Capernaum, a place which didn't persecute Christ as far as the scriptures are concerned, didn't beat him or chase him away. There's no indication that they, they mocked or ridiculed Christ. They tolerated him. And he says, You Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. You see, indifference is as damning as hostility. To reject the truth of Jesus Christ will render you as guilty on judgment day as if you were the very one who drove the nails into the hands of our Lord Jesus Christ. These things spoke to me this week as I was looking at this. How often we can be guilty of indifference. How often we can be selective in our Bible reading. Or selective in how we let the word of God challenge us. And we treat the church like a religious supermarket and we go along and select what we want, when we want, where we want. 
And this is Paul's great concern for these, Gal- these Galatians. He's saying you're compromising and you're getting sucked in by these Judaizers, by these fallacious uh, teachers. It says in verse um, 17, they zealously court you or they eagerly seek you. Um, and they come in and they're flattering them and they're falsely edifying these Galatians. The word, I like how the, the New King James renders it, court you. It's used of, of a man when he's courting a woman. And, and when a man is interested in women, he isn't half-hearted about it. He zealously seeks after her with his full affection. Because why? He wants her as his wife. And this is the point Paul's making. He says, they seek after you. Why? Because they want you. Their agenda was to make them wholly dependent and wholly obligated to themselves. The end of verse 7, that they may be zealous for them. It's the same word. That you may be zealous for them. Sorry. And that's Paul's deep concern. And yet in all of this, we see his deep love and, and his, his yearning for reconciliation. Verse 19. My children. It's a diminutive in the Greek. It can be translated my little children. The only time Paul ever uses that word in all of his epistles. And it, it emphasizes um, his, his affection. He has for these people his deep solicitude and yearning. In his writing, he says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth, or travail in birth, again, until Christ be formed in you, until Christ is formed in you. He says, I labor, I I, I travail in birth. This word's um, only used three times in the New Testament as a verb. And um, it's used in verse 27 of this chapter and, and also in Revelation 12 verse 2. And it signifies the birth pains attendant to labor. And um, <clears throat> Paul is saying, I'm going through this again. You see in uh, Acts 14 verse 19 that when Paul had originally come to these Galatians that he had been stoned, he'd been dragged out of the city and left for dead. And he's saying, so great is my my labor and and pain emotionally for you that it's, it's equivalent to that. But he says, I'll go through it. Why? I'll go through this again so that Christ may be formed in you. That word formed, uh, it's the only time it's used again in this, um, in the New Testament, in, in, in verb form. And it, it, it's medical language. It, in the Greek it would signify the change that the embryo undergoes um, <clears throat> uh, during the development of the child in the mother, within the mother. And we get our English word morph from it. Um, And it it signifies a change of essence, a change which is wrought at the very core of one's being. And and the point is, the Christian isn't one who consists of a few around the edges, uh, some superficial or peripheral changes. 
an amendment of behavior. No, the Christian is one where Christ is being formed. An essential change of character into the likeness of Christ. And the Christian life is about being permanently and progressively changed into the image of Christ. John Brown, a Scottish theologian, um, and in, in 1738 he was he would have been found at the uh, in St Andrews at the Andrew or Alexander McCulloch Library, and and there he was as just a young boy in his handspun clothes and, and his bare feet, and um, he said, "Can I get a Greek New Testament, please?" And and the man kind of scoffed and was like, "Well." If you can read it, I'll give it to you for free. And a couple minutes later, there he was with this with this leather-bound book in his hand, and he translates a passage um, from the Greek straight into the English, and um, he managed to get this book uh, for free, this New Testament. And uh, later that night, he walks home to uh, he had a he was a shepherd boy in Abernethy, some fifty miles away, and and he began to study the Word of God. But he writes this. And I think it sums sums up what I'm trying to say well here. The great object of Paul's anxiety was that Christ might be formed in them. That is, they might be true fellow Christians. When a man becomes a true Christian, Christ is formed in them. That is, Christ's mode of thinking becomes the way he thinks. Christ's feelings become his feelings. He continues, he says, He is just an annotated image of Jesus Christ. And this, and nothing short of this, is what it means to be a Christian. It's a challenge, isn't it? The shining forth of the image of Christ within us. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's so many analogous passages to this one. Um, Romans 8 29 says, We've been predestined to become conformed into the image of His Son. 2 Peter 1 verse 4, We've become partakers of the divine nature, which means the, the divine nature is being formed in us, and that we're becoming more God-like, Christ-like. 2 Corinthians 3.17 and I'll turn to it in verse 17 it says now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is there is liberty and that's what Paul's been getting at in Galatians as far isn't he there's liberty in justification and there's liberty in its concomitant sanctification a liberty from your, your legalistic ways and also a liberty from your libertarian ways Paul's saying he says where the spirit of the Lord is there is liberty verse 18 but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And that's it. There's this transformative um, impression upon us as Christians. And really the question is, is Christ being formed in our lives? Are we being essentially changed? Are we letting the potter conform and shape us into the image of Christ. Can we say with Isaiah, But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father. We are the clay, and Thou art 
our potter, and we all are the work of thy hands. Let me finish with with a couple quotes. Henry Skugel, he was a, a Puritan writer. Um, I think, personally, I think he was one of the best writers on the Christian life and living a balanced Christian life and what that looks like. Um, 1650 he was born and died in 1678 just 28 years just 28 years old and he writes in this book the life of God and the soul of man and he's talking about Christianity he's talking about religion and he says religion and he just puts it so well religion being a resemblance of the divine perfections the image of the almighty shining in the soul of man nay it's the real participation of his nature it's a beam of the eternal light a drop of that infinite ocean of goodness and they who have endured with it may have been said now here it is God dwelling in their souls and Christ formed within them Whitfield when he, when he read this book it was given to him um, by Wesley Charles Wesley um, and he read this book and, and he writes this in his journals he says I wondered what the author meant when saying some falsely placed religion is about, not going, about going to church and doing hurt to no one, being consistent in the duties of the closet, and now and then reaching out your hands to give alms to your neighbour. Alas, thought I, if this, be t- not, if this be not true religion, what is? All Whitfield had known to this point was religion in terms of just doing this and doing that. And he writes, God soon showed me. True religion was in the union of the soul with God. And Christ formed in us. And I don't know tonight. I may be speaking to someone who is spiritually depressed. Who like these Galatians, what then has happened to the blessing which you enjoyed? And maybe you're disheartened. And maybe the joy of your salvation and and that, that vivaciousness of new faith seems to be distant and abstracted. And you're miserable. And your work for the Lord is, is lacking. And there's a sense of lassitude in your Christian life. And, and, and there's lethargy. You're sleepy as a Christian. And although you would never doctrinally admit it, you are living a works-based salvation in practice. And you come along to church and, and, and you do this and you come along to functions that church put on and you do works and this and that and the other all out of duty instead out of a desire and a love for Christ or maybe you're sitting here tonight and for the longest time you've come along to this church you've heard the gospel you've just been entirely indifferent to it and you come along to church because you enjoy the fellowship or maybe your friends come along. And you've never let the, the, the truth of the gospel speak into your heart. Let this not be the case. Let us instead dwell upon the word of God. Meditate upon these things. 
And as we do, let that be our joy, the source of our joy and fulfillment in life. Let us come to know the immeasurable worth, the immeasurable greatness of our salvation, the preciousness of our salvation. Let us not be selective in our take-up of the Scriptures. I pray that each one of us could say tonight, the Almighty shining forth of Christ in our lives. The nature of a true Christian is one who has received and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and is consequently and inevitably transformed more and more daily into His image. Calvin writes, If ministers wish to do anything... Let them labour to form Christ, not form themselves and their hearers. Let us just pray. Dear Lord, we come before you this evening and we thank you for all we have considered. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the consistency within it. And Lord, we realise that it's every time we come to it, it's challenging. And it speaks to our hearts. And Lord, I pray tonight that we would realize something of this. Lord, I pray that each one of us would be more conformed to you this week. I pray that Christ would be formed uh, within us. It's not just enough to have Him dwelling with us. He has to be formed. Our lives have to be transformed by the power of the gospel. I pray this would be true for each one of us. I pray we wouldn't be selective when we come to the Word of God. We'd be honest with ourselves. And we wouldn't hate the truth which is found within it. I pray this all in your holy and precious and almighty name. Amen. Amen.